This is lesson 39, and we're out of chapter 11 now. We're in chapter 12 of Romans. And uh, like I say, we, that, the doxology, he ends it with the doxology. I ended it with uh, how great thou art. I said in one of the first lessons that you would be hard-pressed to find the reason for the writing of this letter. It's not a typical Pauline letter in that everything is said in such a kind and gentle way. You'd hardly recognize it as a letter of correction. But it is a letter of correction. And there's a reason that this letter is written in such a kind way. And Paul told us why in chapter 1 in verse 13. He said, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now. In order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, to both wise and the foolish. And that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. You see, and so he says he planned to come, but he was prevented. And so we learn from this that Paul doesn't even know the people he's writing to. And so his letter is one of kind of walking on eggshells. He has to offer some correction here, but he has to, he does it by kind of walking on eggshells. He doesn't know how it's going to be received. Will he accept his authority or not? He's going to offer a defense of the Jewish people throughout the letter, but particularly in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And I'm certain he's unsure whether this will be accepted as truth or just as his prejudicial love for his Jewish brothers. The point being, this is a very wise letter of correction, one that we could all learn from as far as our own offering correction with grace. I often hear people offer correction, but seldom do I hear it offered with grace. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Well, Paul didn't go to Rome for another year or more after writing this letter. And when he did, he was a prisoner, hardly free to go preach the gospel. But then he didn't wait to preach the gospel either because this letter begins with a rather complete rendering of the gospel in the first chapters. And the reason Paul was unable to go to Rome, we talked about earlier, we're going to repeat it, that Emperor Claudius had made all the Jews leave Rome and this eviction lasted five years, from 49 common era to 54 common era. So as Paul is writing this letter in about 56 common era, Jews are now returning to Rome. But as they return, they're finding that the Gentiles that worship the God of Israel have changed their attitude toward Jewish people. The same anti-Semitism that the world has shown the Jewish people in Rome has begun to creep into the hearts and minds of these Gentile believers. The point being, there's a wave of anti-Semitism that swept through Rome and judging from Paul's defense of the Jewish people in chapters 9 through 11, it's affected the church in Rome as well. So because Paul has not been to Rome and does not know the people of the Roman church, his letter begins with this very complete rendering of the gospel, emphasizing, of course, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. 
Not only has he not been there for, five, for a period of five years, and not only has he not ever been there, but for a period of five years, there were no Jewish believers, no Jewish non-believers there either. And I want you to understand that these Romans, Gentiles, are babes in the Lord for the most part. And not only that, they've been separated from the root of the tree that they've been grafted into. Think about it for a moment. You know, when people come to Sar Shalom, they're amazed by what they learned through the understanding of the roots of the faith. I've heard people say, you know, I've been in the church for 30 years and I've learned more here in one year than the entire 30 years in the church. Well, these folks are no different. They've been separated from the root much the same way. And so Paul spends the first part of the letter trying to get them in touch again. In touch with the plan of God. In touch with the love of God for his people Israel. And his love for all mankind. And now in chapter 12 he's going to begin to tell us what is the attitude that the Romans should have toward Jewish believers and not just Jewish believers but all people in general. And in doing so he's going to teach us much about what our attitude should be toward Jewish people and toward one another as well. Some of the things that he's taught, like walking in the spirit and not in the flesh, being in Messiah, and the obedience of faith are going to be more fully explained. They're going to come to life in the next few chapters. And he will make the Romans aware of their shortcomings in these areas as well. How do we walk out this faith in Messiah Yeshua? As Paul puts it, our obedience to faith. Well, let's read verse 1 and see if we can begin to find out. He says in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And there's our transition. The word therefore. In other words, because of what I've just written you about the good news, the Jewish people and God's mercy toward you, I urge you. Because the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Greek, I urge you, brothers. Because God foreknew you and the Jewish people alike and loves us all alike, I urge you. Because God has had mercy upon you so that he could make Israel envious, so that he might have mercy on all men who turn toward him, Jew and Greek alike. Because of all the love and mercy God of God and through the mercy that he imparts to you, I urge you to present your bodies. And he's not speaking of body as we think of body, but he means your entire selves as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice or a living offering. Present your bodies The Hebrew word there for offering is the Hebrew word korban. It would be the Hebrew word korban. It's not the Hebrew word in the Greek, of course. But the Hebrew word for offering is korban. And while it's used of the sacrifice itself, the word means something quite different. And I put the definition up here. It means something brought near the altar. It comes from a root word karab, which means to approach. To draw near, to draw nigh. Something offered or brought near. And the thought here is that it is the method for one who has been alienated from God to be brought near once again. 
The korban was the vehicle through which one was brought near to God. And if we think of it in the case of a sin offering, sin alienates the person from God. Look at the Torah and what happened to people who sinned. They were put outside the camp. The offering restores you to right standing with God. It brings you back into the camp, so to speak, so to speak that you can once again draw near to God. And so Paul says, present yourselves as living offerings. In other words, he's saying, present yourselves as living methods of drawing near to God. Or we could say, let's present ourselves as examples to others. Or we might say, let's present ourselves to others in a way that would inspire them to draw near to God. You see, if we look at the offerings, we have one offering in particular, the olah, the burnt offering. And if Paul had an offering in mind, this was certainly the one that he would have had in mind in this instance. And the distinguishing feature of this offering was that it was entirely presented to God. The whole of the offering was placed on the altar and burned on the altar. All of the other offerings had some portion given back to the priest or given back to the offer, but the burnt offering was wholly given to God. It was this burnt offer that was pla- offering that was placed on the altar morning and evening. And all the other offerings were sandwiched in between this one offering. The thought behind it is the Olah represented what your entire devotion to God should be. That you should be entirely devoted to God. Completely devoted to God. As that offering was totally given to God. You should be completely given over to the service of God. And if your, if your behavior fell below that devotion, that total devotion, then you had sinned and you needed to bring an additional offering. And when it says acceptable to God, you know, with the burnt offering, you had to present it. And a sacrifice had to be presented exactly as God prescribed or it would not be accepted. If you decided to bring it to some other place than the place prescribed by God, it was not accepted. If you brought an animal with defect, it was not accepted. If you brought the wrong type of animal, if you strangled the animal instead of slicing the throat, the animal was not accepted. But we can be sure that when Paul says acceptable, he's referring to being without defect. Just as we should present ourselves without sin. Which means he's saying to be a living sacrifice, it is going to take some behavior changes. It's going to take some conformity to the word of God. It's going to take some study, some prayerful study, some spirit-filled walking out of the commands of God. And the next thing it says is a living sacrifice. How many sacrifices that do you read of in the book of Leviticus that end up living? None. Right? They're all dead. Right? So you die to yourself and you present yourself as an offering. You know, what's the other thing about an offering? Well, an offering was not brought to make itself holy. Right? In fact, it was already without blemish. If it had defect, it was not acceptable. An offering was brought to cover the sins of the offerer or offerers. So what Paul is saying in all of this is what I said last week. Get out of yourself. Die to yourself. Live for God. Conform to Messiah. Begin to live for others. 
Let your behavior be an example to others. You know, food is a perfect example here. A while back, the elders decided to, simply, to simplify the onigs and make them more Jewish law friendly by separating meat and dairy. Even though, hey, even though I'm totally convinced and the elders are convinced there's nothing wrong with a turkey and cheese sandwich. I eat them all the time. I love turkey a la king. But we decided for the sake of a Jewish person coming through the door that we would make our own eggs Jewish friendly. Even though I, like I said last week, I love that spicy beef and the spicy chicken that Claudia used to bring. I used to live for that stuff to be on the own egg table. You see, but that in a small way is what Paul is saying here. And I mean just a small way. That is in a small way what Paul is saying here. Set yourself aside. Become one who's concerned with the salvation and the well-being of others. How can you enjoy a bowl of spicy beef or a cheeseburger if it offends the person that's sitting across from you? Living your life for others so as not to offend others is what it means to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. An offering atones for another. An offering benefits another at the offering's expense. So let your behavior be one that atones for others. Live lives of sacrifice for others. And so food, in this instance, was an excellent example, but fasting is even better. Listen to what Isaiah says about fasting. His famous uh, talk of fasting in Isaiah 58, verses 4 through 8. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with wicked fists. You do not fast like you, you do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for one bowing one head like a reed and for spreading sackcloth and ashes on a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide your face from your, hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will be speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You see, the kind of fasting the Lord describes here is not something for your benefit. I often hear Christians say, I'm fasting because I want a breakthrough. You know, and often I think God in his mercy does give people breakthroughs. However, that is not what a fast is all about. He makes it clear in this statement about fasting. A fast is for another's breakthrough. It's for someone else to have a breakthrough. God is rebuking Israel for the attitude toward fasting because fasting had become all about them. When in fact, the kind of fasting that God requires ends up in good done for others. That's the thought behind an offering. Paul spent the entire uh, the chap- chapters on the flesh and putting it to death. 
Well, he's saying the same thing here. Present yourself as an offering, as a covering. Live in such a way that others will draw near to God through you and your behavior. Paul will speak of special days in chapter 14. So it means if we gather on a day that the Jewish people hold holy, but we're convinced maybe not so much like Shavuot or maybe one of their fast days, Shavuot a few weeks ago. But if we gather for the sake of one of Yeshua's brothers, hey, that's a good deed. And which really, when you think about it, which of us really couldn't use an extra day of gathering together to worship the Holy One of Israel? Some would say, well, I'll lose a day of work. Well, isn't that what we just read fasting was? You're giving up something? If we think that we're right, and if we think that they're under oppression of the rabbi's dictates, and they've missed the truth of the word of God, did not Isaiah say this about fasting? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of yoke, and let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Right? You know, it, says, it also says acceptable to God. How do you find out what's acceptable to God? For you to be a living offering. Well, the offering that was acceptable to God was without blemish. It was spotless. And so when the offerer laid hands on the animal, the offerer took on the spotlessness of the offering, and the offering took on the sin of the offerer. And then it paid the price for that sin with its life. In the same way, Paul is saying, keep yourself spotless, keep yourself from sin as Messiah was without sin. And so it became an offering for sin. How do you do that? Well, James says this in chapter 3, verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. If you want to keep yourself from sin so that you can be a perfect offering without blemish, then study Torah and walk it out through the leading of Yeshua, the leading of the Spirit. Simple. So Paul says this in in verse 2, he says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so Paul says next, he says, be not conformed to this world, but the world there in the Greek is the word eon. It more accurately means means age. Be not conformed to this age. You see, Paul didn't think there was more than one world. But in that one world, he knew there were two ages. He speaks of them in Ephesians. He says, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And so Paul knew there was a present age, a present evil age, he calls it in some places, and he knew there was a coming age in which Messiah will rule. What did conformity to the age mean in the time of Paul, the time Paul wrote this letter? What would he have been thinking of when he said that? Well, we've discussed much of it through the first 11 chapters. For the Romans, it meant keep yourselves from anti-Semitism, for one. The anti-Semitism that plagued the Rome. Because of Claudius, anti-Semitism was prevalent in Rome. And that was certainly part of the age that Paul spoke of. He also meant idol worship that plagued Rome. Rome had more gods than you could shake a stick at. 
And that certainly was part of the age that he refers to here. Sexual immorality. And some of the other things of particular importance were those things that were handed down by the apostles in Acts chapter 15 that were associated with idol worship. All of these things would have alienated them from God and from the people of God to include the Jewish people. All of these things were part of the age they lived in. Hey, guess what? They're still part of the age today. How about today? How is the church doing with conformity to the world today, the age today? Well, for one thing, the Romans did not take Paul's admonition here. And the age crept into the faith. We showed from previous week, the church fathers allowed Roman anti-Semitism to creep into the church. You hear it in their rhetoric. How about idol worship? Well, if you go to Rome... There's a statue of Peter there with its toes rubbed off from all the people that have been kissing those toes, touching that statue. Go into any Roman Catholic church and you're going to see statues that are prayed to and revered. So we didn't do too well there, did we? We still celebrate a festival named for a goddess. Goddess. As well, every spring, instead of Passover and First Fruits, we gather together for Easter. Ishtar. The point being, the church did not listen to Paul and were still doing the things of the age that crept in during that time of the Romans, the Roman Empire. And if that weren't bad enough, look at the church since. We still haven't taken the words of Paul to heart. There are things accepted by the world at large through televisions, movies, and books, and songs. They become acceptable in the church now. Things that are called an abomination by God, condemned by Paul, are now accepted in the church. And this is what we've done instead of renewing our mind. A renewed mind no longer conforms to this age. That's what the text says. So ask yourself, if we're not to conform to this age, then what age are we to conform to? There's two. Listen to what he tells Timothy. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. You see, if we're to be living sacrifices, we should conform to the coming age. And here, Paul tells us something about securing that age. He tells us how to live for the coming age. He says, be rich in good deeds. Yeshua told a young man something very similar when he was asked. In Matthew 19, he says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You see, much as we might hate to realize this, money, wealth, and power are products of this age. But we're to conform to the coming age. And the currency of the coming age is good deeds you did while you were here. That's the currency of the coming age. I've said this before. They tell you in this age that when you die, you can't take your money with you. But that's not true. The Bible says that you can take it with you. The only catch is you have to give it away while you're here. And then you have treasure in heaven. Listen to what Paul told the Colossians. He says, Therefore... 
as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. We are to clothe ourselves with these attributes of Yeshua, who humbled himself lower than an angel and then gave his life as an offering. You see, in the midst of all these words, there's one that Paul's trying to instill in these Romans. Because if you can get this one instilled, the rest will follow. And what is it? Humility. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where is my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so that they came into being, declares the Lord? This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know, I often think, People look at this phrase, you know, because this is an amazing phrase when you really start to pick it apart. Present yourselves as living sacrifices, living holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And I think, you know, they think it's some grand thing that we do for God. And I believe it is, but not in the same way most people believe. The grand gesture that God is looking for is for you to give yourself for others. Fast for others. Prefer others. Go the extra mile for others. Set yourself aside for others. Set aside disputable matters for others. Because if you want one secret to behavior that's pleasing to God, it's wrapped up in this one word, humility. Look at every sin in the Bible and you're going to find self-centeredness. Look at every good deed in the Bible that the Bible records and at the core of that good deed is humility. And so Paul says in verse 3, for, the, for through the grace given me, I say to every one among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. You see, now Paul gets to the root here. He still does it nice and kindly. Right? Read some of his other letters. He's not so kind to the people he knows. So the, he gets to the root of the problem here. And it's that these folks are thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. The opposite of humility is to think highly of yourself, particularly more highly of yourself than you ought. Paul makes it clear to the Ephesians. He says this, or the Philippians, in chapter 2, he says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Messiah, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being of one spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you're in Messiah... If you're truly united with Messiah, you're not going to think more highly of yourself than you ought because you're going to realize that you're nothing without Him. 
And you'll be like-minded and with one purpose, one spirit with others, rather than conceited. Paul is addressing the problem, and the problem is divisive behavior within the community. In the case of Rome, the divisive behavior is conceit directed at the Jewish people. It's a behavior that comes from being conformed to this world. It started with a wave of anti-Semitism initiated by the ruler of the present evil age at that time, Claudius. And let me ask, do you, do you don't think that the anti-Semitism began in the congregation, do you? Of course not. Before the expulsion of the Jewish people, these Jewish men were leaders in the community. However, after five years being uh, of expulsion, things have changed. We got some new leaders who rose up in the community. And they're not excited about relinquishing their leadership roles now that the Jewish people are returning. So he says in verse 3, he says, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted each a full measure of faith. He says, think of yourselves with sound judgment. And again, let me tell you something. If we thought of ourselves with sound judgment, humility would not be a problem. We would be humble, no problem, because sound judgments would tell us we're nothing and Yeshua is all in all. Paul is about now is about to go through spiritual gifts. And each of us have some of these spiritual gifts. Some of, them, some of us use them, some of us don't. But we all have some. And as we look at these spiritual gifts next week, I'm going to compare these spiritual gifts with the gifts that's listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I think you're going to understand something else about Rome that we haven't seen before. There's a reason that these two sections, the gifts listed, are not the same even though they're supposed to be. You'd think they'd be, right? But they're not, and there's a reason for it. And you can be thinking about that till next week.